Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We are celebrating Black History Month this week on the show with an episode featuring some of the most talented comedians, writers, and musicians in the business. Starting off with a conversation with comedian and former SNL writer Sam Jay about what it's like hosting her late night show on HBO. It's called Pause with Sam Jay. Then we're going to hear from Jelani Memory. Now, Jelani Memory was a father who wanted to talk to his kids about racism. And then when he went to look for an age-appropriate book on the subject, he couldn't find any, so he wrote one. And now he runs a whole publishing company that helps kids learn about important topics. Then we've got music from two different musical guests, Layla McCalla, and then also the duo Black Violin. So that's the plan for this week. It's going to be a great show. Stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. Hey, are you ready to play a little station location identification examination? Let's do it. This is where I'm going to quiz Elena about a place in the country where we're on the radio, and uh, she's got to guess where I am talking about. All right. Uh, This city is home to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, which was created by former players uh, back in 1990. You can see all kinds of amazing stuff, including some uh, really great uh, kind of information on folks like Jackie Robinson and Buck O'Neill. I'm making this noise to stall because I do not know the answer. The good news is I've got lots of hints. (laughs) How about the fact that Charlie Parker is from this place? Now, I always kind of knew Charlie Parker's nickname to be Bird, but I guess before that, Folks would call him Yardbird because he really loved chicken. And then it got shortened to Bird. Anyway, he was born in this place and he played his first gig at Country Club Plaza in this town. Okay. Uh, I think that that's uh, where they have crazy little women, uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas City, Missouri is exactly <laughs> right. Where we're on the radio on K A N U. Radio. It's also the home to Cathay Williams, who in 1861 was the first African-American woman to enlist in the U.S. Army. Whoa. Back when women were prohibited from serving, she posed as a man to get into the Army. So shout out to Cathay Williams. And shout out to everyone tuning in in Kansas City, Missouri. Congratulations on your uh, football team's success of late. 
And thanks for tuning in to LiveWire. Should we get to the show? Yeah, let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's LiveWire. This week, comedian Sam J. A lot of people we talk to are not TV savvy, and that's on purpose because we want real people with real opinions and not people who have practiced opinions. You know what I mean? And writer Jelani Memory. We lie to ourselves about what is okay and not okay for kids. And that's not for their sake. I actually believe it's for our sake. With music from Layla McCalla and Black Violin, I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Lou Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello, and thanks to everyone for tuning in from all over the country, including Kansas City, Missouri. This week, we are celebrating Black History Month, and we have a special episode in store with a lot, a lot to get to. So let's jump right into our first guest. She was named one of Variety's 10 comics to watch back in 2018, and it turned out a lot of people did watch her and have been watching her. She released a stand-up special on Netflix, Three in the Morning. Uh, She was then hired as a writer on Saturday Night Live, where she wrote those uh, Black Jeopardy sketches, which are kind of legendary in the world of of SNL these days. We talked to Sam Jay about her weekly late-night HBO series. It's called Pause with Sam Jay, and it is a really inventive take on the whole idea of what a late-night talk show can be. So check this out. Sam Jay, welcome to LiveWire. Hi, thank you guys for having me. It is so hard to make a show that doesn't look like other shows because, like, almost everything has been done. But you somehow accomplished that with pause. I mean, it's really a vibe. I'm just curious what the conversations were like uh, when you were developing the show, like what you wanted it to kind of look and feel like. We had a lot of conversations about what the show was going to be. You know, it was some trial and error of like fleshing out some ideas. And then first we definitely started with a feeling and we just wanted it Mm. to feel like how real people have conversations and, you know, not knocking any late night. It's a format and it's a format that's worked for years, but it just doesn't ever feel to me like what people talk like for real. It just feels like this very canned conversation. Mm. And I was like, oh, I wonder how we can just make something where it feels like how it is when you're like hanging out and talking. And also how do we get some like real perspective and honesty on some of these like harder to discuss topics. Mm. And then I was uh just watching stuff and I was like, oh, you know, maybe it should kind of feel like Playboy after dark. I don't know what, why I was watching that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was like an influence for sure. And then it was like, well, what is my version of, of that? And I was chilling with one of the writers and we were having some drinks and talking after one of the um, writers' rooms at my house. And most of the people who write for the show are like my friends and friends I've had in comedy for a long time. So we're just very comfortable with one another. And we were talking and arguing and yelling at each other about something, which is (laughs) normal. And I was like, it should feel like this. Whatever this is, Mm. this is how it needs to feel. Because this feels like the most me Anyone who knows me knows I will corner you in a party and scream (laughs) at you to death about something. And so I called Prentice drunk and I was like, I know what it is. It's like a party. And then it's like this. And then it's like that. And I was like, do you get it? And he was like, no. 
And I was like, fine, I will call you tomorrow when I'm sober and explain this clearer. And I called him the next day and I was like, no, like, it's a party. Then you jump from the party to the interviews because we already had the interview structure kind of there. But I was like, this is how we bridge these two things. And he was like, I'm down to see what that looks like. And I was like, cool. And then we just tried it. We're talking to Sam J about her show Pause with Sam J on HBO. Season two is out now. I'm curious about the the um, production of the because the thread, as you mentioned, of the show is kind of a party at your house where you're talking to your friends and and then you go out in the world and, and do some reporting and interviews and sketches. But when you're talking to your friends in the the party part of it, do you forget the cameras are there? Does it feel really organic, or do you have producers coming around with like you know cue cards going? You guys no, got to get to this no, topic. No, 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 because I, I I wanted everyone to feel comfortable and like not like they're on TV because I feel like that's how we're gonna kind of get the best and most honest stuff out of people. So once we roll, we're rolling. I don't want anyone managing or touching or positioning mm. my friends. Mm. There's no boom mics in the room. A lot of people we talk to are not TV savvy. And that's on purpose because we want real people with real opinions and not yeah. people who have mm. practiced opinions. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of cameramen in the room. It's just two dudes on, on, on roaming cams, body, body joints, just, you know, moving around like a real party. It's okay for it to feel like you're really in a space and in a party space and definitely no cue cards. The people who come don't even know the topic. Wow. They truly just show up and I know the topic. Okay. I'm aware of what we need to talk about that day, but they just come to truly hang out and then I'll kind of just spark an idea. And a lot of times it just takes over the party, you know? Hmm. And then this season, my fiance was very helpful in the uh, booking of people and so she knew everything we wanted to talk about. And like, she was just good at, she knows my friends and we have a lot of mutual friends. And she was like, this is like a good group of people that they'll take to this conversation. So there's a, mm. a little bit of manipulation yeah. in that way. Like the jail episode, I just invited mm. a bunch of people I know who've been to jail. Mm-hmm. We find our way into it different ways, but I'm, I'm always super aware, but I don't even tell them. Right. They just show up. One of the really memorable scenes from the season, uh, you're, you're riding a horse. <laughs> through a predominantly black neighborhood and you're, you're going, the crackers are coming. I'm wondering, um, that's very different performatively from doing stand-up in a club or for writing for SNL. Like, are you fully comfortable now being out in public doing stuff like that guerrilla style kind of filming? No. <laughs> you're shaking your head no. no. <laughs> uh, this season is actually the first time we're doing stuff like this because uh, last season, due to COVID, we couldn't. So mm-hmm. a lot of the sketch stuff last season was super sketchy in a way that we never intended the show to be. We had always intended for it to feel very in the world. And because mm-hmm. of COVID, we couldn't like do it that way, mm-hmm. which is sometimes like a good thing because some of the ideas were like super mean. And it was like, <laughs> oh, this was probably we shouldn't have done that. Like, I don't know if you saw last season, but we did a go judge uh-huh. me sketch where like a, uh-huh. I was judging people yeah. for their go fund yeah. because I was like just <laughs> going through this period where I was just like incised by people and their their requests on GoFundMe. I just thought it was ridiculous. But that original <laughs> idea was like, we were going to take real people with GoFundMes that we did not like and have oh. them write it on a card and like sit in the street and beg. Oh, my and, God. oh man. In hindsight, bad. At right. the time, we thought <laughs> maybe we were making a point. But in hindsight, it was like, ah, oh, I'm kind of glad that didn't go that way. <laughs> 
like, do you still feel kind of self-conscious or just like, ah, everybody's looking at me on this random street in Boston? Yeah, dude, I was on a horse dressed like Django <laughs> screaming. <laughs> yeah, I was so conscious <laughs> about what was happening for sure. I love all these challenges that the show is setting for you. And, you know, I'm, I'm assuming interviewing is the same way. It's not the same thing as mm-hmm. doing stand-up. It's not the same thing for, like, writing for SNL. Um, did you have a natural affinity for it or did you have to, like, go to boot camp to learn how to do it? No, I just sat down and did it. And then wow. people were like, you're you're pretty good at that for someone who doesn't do that. And I was like, okay. But I do have like a natural uh, curiosity about people. And I'm mm. just like that in my regular day. Like I'll sit down and end up knowing how someone fully grew up, like issues they had with their parents. Because I just ask questions. And I'm mm-hmm. very curious about the makeup of people and why they think the way they think more so than what they think. I kind of like to know, like, well, well, how did you get to this thinking? So that's just like a natural thing for me to just ask a bunch of stuff. What kinds of questions help you understand how someone thinks versus just their opinions? Like, what kinds of things do you ask to know that? Just life experience questions, like what they've been through. You know what I mean? Like, uh, sometimes I'll ask someone, like, when's the first time you felt that way? You know, like, what Mm -hmm. was going on? Like, what... Do you think sparked this initial feeling or did you always feel this way? You know, just curious George stuff. I just be curious. Just curious, George. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm curious about your time at SNL. I had heard that you uh, were hesitant about taking the job, which I was surprised because for most people in comedy, it's like the dream. Um, I just didn't really, I don't want to say I was hesitant. It just wasn't really a thing that was like on my radar at the time. I didn't mm-hmm. really think I'd ever end up there. I don't do sketch. I've never written sketch. Like, hmm. I just didn't see myself in that, like, NBC kind of more family, middle America space. And so when it all kind of came to to me, I was just like, I guess, you know, because I, I just didn't know what to think of it. And then once I was kind of in the process, then I was like, I guess I really want to do this or this could be really cool. But it just took me a while to warm up to the idea just because I never saw myself in that space. Wow. I was still in this very much, I'm a stand-up and I do stand-up and that's what I do space. And I was looking for my next stand-up opportunity, you know, a special offer or something like that was what I thought was next for me. And this Mm -hmm. just kind of came like a train and and like just came from the side and was like, what about this? And I was like, (laughs) all right, you know? This is Livewire from PRX. We are talking to comedian and writer Sam Jay about her HBO show Pause with Sam Jay. Uh, much more with Sam in a moment, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. 
ZBiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, along with Elena Passarello. We are celebrating Black History Month this week by sharing some of our favorite interviews from over the last couple of years. Uh, and right now we're playing our conversation with comedian Sam Jay, talking about her HBO show, Pause with Sam Jay. Take a listen. Um, you did uh, have a stamp special that you released on Netflix. I think it was in 2020 three in the morning. And that was, it was super funny by the way. Yeah. But it also came out at a kind of a weird time where you weren't really touring um, because a lot of clubs were closed. But now when you're out and you're performing, you're doing stand up, people obviously kind of know who you are from the HBO show and, and from, uh, from the special. What's that like for you being a celebrity now? Like uh, how's that feel? I don't feel like a celebrity yet. And I don't know that I ever will. I have to, I guess, give it up to my girl. She she does not make me feel like a celebrity at all on any day. She treats me very bad. Your fiance? Yeah, my fiance. She she doesn't treat me like any type of a celebrity. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, I gotta go. And she's like, do what? And I'm like, make my TV show. You know, like, <laughs> right. <laughs> Live the dream. <laughs> you know? So I think it's just, you know, always being around friends that I've, I've known forever and stuff like that kind of keeps me in a... I don't want to say grounded headspace, but in a headspace where I don't always remember that that's going on. Doing this with my friends, too, I kind of forget, like, where I'm doing. I'm just, like, hanging out with my friends and making fun stuff. And so I forget even that, like, I'm a face of anything. Even at pause, like, sometimes Langston has to, like, yell at me in the writer's room because it'll just be quiet. And I'll be, like, just chilling with everybody else. And he's like, you have to tell us what to do. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I like that idea. This is cool. Because I'm just like, I wonder what everyone else is going to say. That is like the weirdest moment of adult life. And you're having an intense version of it, but where you look around the room and you realize, oh, wait, uh, yeah, I'm in charge of this. Yeah, Yeah. it's so weird. And people don't really talk about it. I still don't realize like, oh, we're going to make this. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it's still just like dreaming to me. And then when we make it, it's oftentimes we're like, oh, my God, we forgot they're going to do the things we say. (laughs) We're on set all the time, like embarrassed because we'll see a joke actually in our face and be like, (laughs) why didn't someone say no? Why didn't someone? (laughs) Why is this like this? And then we're like, because we wrote it that way. (laughs) Well, I'm curious what the kind of prime goal for you with the show is if it's being funny or being thought-provoking. And I know it can be both things. It's like a false choice. But I'm curious if there is one that's really primary in your mind, like what what you hope people take away from the experience of watching this show? I will be honest. um, Really, no one's ever asked me this. So thank you for a new question. (laughs) Because I don't want to seem like I don't care if it's funny. I care if it's funny. But I thought about the show and what I wanted to do with the show. And I was like, Funny can't be the priority. The priority has to be the topic and how we're going to get into the topic and what Hmm. our goal is with this topic. Like, why are we talking about this? Why now? Why is this important for me to talk about? And what are we bringing to this conversation that hasn't been brought to the conversation before? So, like, those are the priorities. And then how do we make this funny? But Hmm. if something doesn't feel funny, immediately we don't not explore it. We just mm. challenge ourselves to find the funny within it. 
Well, you've done a great job with it. You and the whole team making the show. I mean, it is really oh, thank uh, you. thought-provoking, funny. And for me as, you know, a white straight dude, it's a, just a view into a world that I don't live in all the time. And I just feel like it really informs me and really gives me a whole different perspective. So That's awesome. Congratulations on the show and all your success. You've got like 50 projects going and they all <laughs> seem to be going really well. So Thank you so Sam much. Sam Jay, thank you so much for coming on Livewire. We appreciate you. Thank you for your time. That was Sam J right here on Livewire. You can catch Pause with Sam J on HBO On Demand right now. She's also in this new Kenya Barris movie, You People. She's also starring Jonah Hill and Eddie Murphy. Also, you can catch Sam in person. Uh, she'll be on the road this year. She's going to be heading to Phoenix, Minneapolis, Portland, and a bunch of other places. Hey, special thanks this episode to Crystal McCubbin-Masterson of Yam Hill, Oregon. That's fun to say. And Laura Curvin of North Bend, Washington. Also fun to say. Crystal and Laura are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we're very thankful for that support because it is how we are able to keep Livewire going. So a big thanks to Crystal and Laura for their extremely essential support. This is Livewire from PRX. We are celebrating Black History Month this week on the show. And our first musical guest rose to fame during her time as the cellist for the Grammy Award-winning string band, the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Then she moved out on her own and her solo debut album, Very Colored Songs, a tribute to Langston Hughes, was re-released by Smithsonian Folkways, and we're going to hear something from that album now, plus a little interview that uh, she did with us back in 2020, all the way from New Orleans, Louisiana. Layla McCalla, welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, this album is amazing. I, I feel remiss that I didn't know about it uh, back when it was originally released, but I'm super excited that uh, Smithsonian Folkways is putting it back out because it is a gem. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, it feels it feels good. I mean, when you when you released it in 2014, did you have a sense that it would it would have a kind of a second life like this? I feel like it's 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 hitting a lot of people's radar for the first time right now. Yeah, I mean, I always felt that the the poems themselves were timeless, and um, and I knew that that would carry the songs. You know, mm -hmm. um, what I didn't realize maybe was where this album would take me in my life. And um, so it's exciting to kind of reconnect with the, with the reasons why I started um, putting out records. Cause this is my first album and, mm -hmm. you know, it was a big uh, sort of coming into myself as an artist um, and kind of claiming that about myself. What was there a particular piece of work by Langston Hughes that sparked in your imagination, the idea for this record? Yeah, I would I would say it's the song uh, Heart of Gold, which is the the song that opens the record. Yeah, that's the song that I think I first really heard music, you know, when when I was reading this poem. Mm -hmm. And um so it it's been interesting to 
think about that because the deeper I go into his work and, you know, I'm, I, I hear music in a lot of his work. Um, it mm-hmm. doesn't feel exclusive to the poems that are represented on this album, but um, I did a show. It was like an album release show. And um, I've been performing the songs for so many years now. And uh, I tried to, you know, stay true to the order of the songs on the, on the album. And even that was kind of like, wow, my head was just in such a different place Mm. when I first assembled these songs. I'm like, wow, I had a really specific idea of the story I was trying to tell that, and that story has really changed. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been interesting to just think about, you know, how your mind changes, but then the songs kind of are, um, are still true to some, some part of your journey, you know? That's gotta be really interesting because the, first time you approached the album you're working with a text that's 60 years old and now right. when you reapproach the album there's a new older text and it's yours like you right. you're your own <laughs> archive now right. I'm like wow I used to really be like wanting to be super creative about songwriting you know <laughs> not that I'm I'm not but I'm like God, it's so nice to connect with that sort of beginner's mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It's sort of like first thought, best thought. <laughs> right. You know? Totally. Were you, were you a singer as well all along as a kid? Um, or were, were you, because you were learning some complicated music and obviously that was a big focus of your life, but was the singing part of it as well? No, I was terrified of singing for a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was scary. Um, but I, (laughs) I actually, I think this album, um, really brought my voice out Mm. and kind of made me realize that I need to be, this needs to come from my voice, you know, Mm. it's just a calling, I guess. And once, once you kind of feel that pull, it's hard to not, uh, go in that direction. Was, was that hesitation partly because of like the classical music tradition? There's not a lot of like singing along from the orchestra while the, while the movement is happening. I think that, um, I think that I had thought of myself as an instrumentalist for a long time. You know, I was going to be a cellist and I think that singing felt like this vulnerability, like, you know, it's just not, it's just not my lane, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I started experimenting with cello playing in different, uh, musical settings. And then, you know, I was playing with a lot of singer songwriters and, you know, started thinking of myself as a composer. And, and that's when I was like, well, maybe I, I could sing too. It just felt like it opened up this whole world of possibility for me, mm-hmm. uh, musically and creatively that, um, that it still, it, it continues to do that. Uh, for me. And, and it's interesting because it, it is definitely my, um, it's like my newest instrument in some ways, but it's also like my most powerful one because mm-hmm. it's coming from my body and, you know. It's probably um, the easiest to carry around, you know, you don't have to have a hard case. easier than the cello. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what song are we going to hear today? So I'm going to play a song for you. This one's called Song for a Dark Girl. This was, uh, comes from a poem written by Langston Hughes in 1927. And I find that the words to this song really seem to apply to our world today. Yeah, all right. This is Layla McCalla here on Livewire. Mm-hmm. 
way down south in Dixie Break the heart of me They hung my black young lover To a crossroads tree Way down south in Dixie Bruce's body high in the air I asked the white lord Jesus, what was the use of prayer? Way down south in Dixie, break the heart of me. Love is a naked shadow on an old naked tree. Way down south in Dixie, break the heart of me. They hung my black young lover to a crossroads tree. Way down south in Dixie, bruised body high in the air. I asked the white Lord Jesus, what was the use of prayer? Way down south in Dixie, break the heart of me. Love is a naked shadow on a gnarled and naked tree. Love is a naked shadow on a gnarled and naked tree. Love is a naked shadow on a gnarled and naked tree. Macala, right here on Livewire. Thank you so much. The uh, album Very Colored Songs has been re-released by Smithsonian Folkways, and uh, it is available now to tribute uh, in part to the uh, poetry of Langston Hughes. Layla, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks so much for having me. That was Layla Macala, right here on Livewire. Her album Very Colored Songs, a tribute to Langston Hughes, is available on Smithsonian Folkways now. And since we spoke to Layla, she also created a theater piece and released an album called Breaking the Thermometer, which explores the history of Haiti and her personal discovery of her roots in the country. The album is sung mostly in Creole and uses archival tape from Radio Haiti and is very, very cool, actually. All right, our next guest is a father who wanted to figure out how to talk to his kids about racism and he was looking around for age-appropriate books on the topic, and he couldn't find any. So he wrote one, which led to him founding a media company that's now published over 50 kids' books on such topics as divorce, optimism, voting, cancer, empathy, being non-binary, among other things. The company also produces a bunch of podcasts, and they've sold hundreds of thousands of copies of their books Let's take a listen to our conversation with Jelani Memory, recorded in front of a live audience in Portland at the Alberta Rose Theater. Jelani, welcome to the show. This is wonderful to be here. I grew up in Portland. This is my hometown. A hometown kid here on Livewire, yeah. 
These books are, are really amazing. I've been reading through a number of them this week. I'm curious, though, before this all started, before you, you wrote this, this first book, a kid's book about racism, were you a writer? Like, what were you doing for your job at that point? Did you know how to write a book? I was a bad reader as a kid. Uh, growing up, I, I, I literally would read so slow that I would pretend to read in class. And eventually, once you pretend to read for long enough, you stop reading altogether. So I didn't fall in love with books until I became an adult. And I fell in love with writing and writing for adults, writing for kids, writing for myself. Um, but I wasn't a writer professionally. I was an entrepreneur starting companies. And uh, this book came out of a project that I just wanted to do for my kids to help start a conversation. From kind of a messaging standpoint, what were you hoping your children and, and you have uh, you have six kids, you have uh, some biracial children, you have some white children. What were you hoping they would learn from this book that you were writing? You know, it wasn't so much that I hoped they would learn something. I wanted them to know that it was always okay to talk, to talk about skin color, to talk about race, and especially to talk about racism. So I've got brown kids and I've got white kids. I didn't want my white kids to be the ones in the classroom who are trying to touch somebody's hair or say something mm. uncomfortable. And I didn't want my brown kids to walk through life without having words to describe their experiences. Mm. And so that was really the hope with the books. And it was my kids who said, Dad, you should make more books. You could do a kid's book about ice cream. You could do a kid's book about divorce. You could do a kid's book about anxiety. And that's what, what spurred me forward. There's something in this book that you and I were talking about backstage, Jelani, before the show, where you're, you're writing this from your perspective as a black man and what it's felt like to you when people have acted in a racist way towards you, even if it, they're not aware that they're doing it. And, and you basically write that when that happens, it makes you feel, and then on the next page, in very, very small print, is just the word small. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm 45 years old. I have been trying to be as aware in the world as I can, you know, as like a white person with a lot of privilege. I don't think I ever thought about it from that perspective. Mm. It's an amazing way to convey those kinds of things. Um, and you just like, just knew how to do that somehow? Because this is a kind of a complicated <laughs> book for being so simple. Yeah, yeah I mean, look, uh, for people of color, racism is the water that we swim in every day. We think that happens for, for people of color as adults, but it happens to us as kids, as early as three, four, as soon as we enter into the classroom. For me, growing up here in the, the whitest big city in America, I was often the only brown kid in class, which meant that I was facing questions, stares, uh, comments, right? All of those things, and it would just sort of, again, diminish, reduce, which is, I think, the, the universal experience of feeling discriminated against or misunderstood or or considered less than because of your gender, because of the color of your skin, because of the choices that you've made in your life. And uh, I, it's funny, I put that in the book and my kids immediately got it. Uh, it wasn't a new idea to them. They, they totally understood it. Now that you have this really expansive kind of library of different topics that you're addressing with the company, how do you identify which are the ideas that you want to put your time and resources behind? It's really simple. Uh, we look for authentic voices. Most of the folks who've written with us have never written a book. They don't consider themselves writers, but they walk in with a decade, two decades, a lifetime of experience around a specific subject. For us, it's unnecessary that they have a prerequisite of being good at writing. It's a prerequisite they have an authentic story to tell. We help wrap around a process around that to create a book together. 
including, and I would imagine he has written a book before, but the, a kid's book about imagination is written by national treasure LeVar Burton. Yeah. How did you make that happen? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, talk about an absolute dream come true. So believe it or not, his people reached out to us mm. and said, LeVar knows about your books and he likes them. I mean, honestly, is there anybody more important to literacy in this country than LeVar Burton no! by way of reading Rainbow? No. He, he's it. He is absolutely it. And for me, again, not just as a young black kid, but as a grown black man, right? I, rem I grew up on Roots. I grew up on reading Rainbow, right? I grew up on Trek. Uh -huh. So he was everything, right? Sort of the black past, the black present, and the black future, right? Mm -hmm. So we hop on the call, and it's through Zoom, but I'm, like, fighting back tears, like, you know, getting really giddy. And I think we're going to have to pitch him on, hey, let's, I'm really excited about this book, and I just really want to, like, we're going to give you an advance. We're going to do all the things. <laughs> and, and he stops me somewhere mid-pitch and says, Jelani... I want to make a book with you. Like, I'm, I'm here to work with you. Wow. And that, I mean, it was the greatest gift. And to get to write that book with him was, was amazing. We are, are living in a moment where a lot of kids are probably overhearing a lot of conversations about war. And this led to an opportunity for you to kind of like, what, sort of rapid release a kid's book about war. Tell me the story of how that came together. Yeah. Uh, there are a few moments along the very short history of our company where we felt the need to sort of go beyond uh, our mandate as a business, to go beyond our, our, our mandate to make money for our investors, and just to do the right thing and do it in the way that I think only we can do it. So, um, you know, when lockdowns happened back in 2020 uh, for COVID, we did a kid's book about COVID-19, made it in a week, got it out as a free ebook, and released it to everyone because we thought kids had questions, they needed answers, so we found an epidemiologist to do that book with. When uh, the string of murders happened in Atlanta, we did a kid's book about anti-Asian hate. For the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, we did a kid's book about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Wow. So that with under the belief that every kid in every elementary school should learn this part of our country's history. Mm -hmm. Again, yeah. made the book, released it for free. So we found ourselves as a team watching what was happening in Ukraine and going, oh, I've got questions, but man, my kids have questions. Let's make a book, let's make it free and let's get it to everyone. So we found a wonderful Emmy award-winning journalist, Sarah Jones, spent time in conflict zones, Yemen, Syria, you name it. And, and not just that, interviewing kids mm. who've been affected by conflict. We said, hey, come do a book. That was on a Sunday. We workshopped it on a Monday. We edited it on a Tuesday, we designed it on Wednesday, and we released it uh, last Thursday, actually. Wow. Wow. It's great. This is Livewire Radio. We are talking to Jelani Memory about his series of kids' books that deal with often very serious topics. I'm wondering, uh, how do you sort of decide what's too much information or what's something that could be potentially kind of unsettling for a young person to read about? I'll, I'll say two things, and they'll sound self-contradictory, but I promise they are not. Um, we lie to ourselves about what is okay and not okay for kids, and that's not for their sake. I actually believe it's for our sake. Mm. There are topics that make us too uncomfortable. We don't know what to say, but kids are resilient. They're creative. They're thoughtful, and they're so much more ready for this stuff. Mm than we would ever let ourselves believe. 
And so uh, they'll ask us questions that we're not ready to answer. And so in terms of the information that we put into books, look, we make it developmentally appropriate. We think about the kids on the other end of it and what information they do and don't have very typically. But we find that most grown-ups wait too long and too late to tell their kids stuff instead of having those conversations too early. And for me as a dad of six, look, I didn't have a dad when I grew up. I had to invent fatherhood for myself. And one of the things I knew I was going to give my kids is I was going to tell them stuff too early instead of too late because I found myself craving for adults mm. to tell me things when I was young. Mm. And the one thing we find that folks say about our books is I wish I had these when I was a kid. I wish I had these stories because grandpa died of cancer, because mom and dad got divorced, because I experienced anxiety, but I didn't have the words for it. And I think that starts much earlier than we let ourselves believe. And so for us, it's less about, ooh, we shouldn't go there. Actually, how do we lean in more and make it understandable to kids? Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, It sounds like you sort of started this project because you wanted to try to start a conversation with your own children and therefore leave them better informed and better able to kind of go forward with their lives. How do you feel about the world <laughs> that your kids are going into and that our listeners' kids are going into? Because there's a lot to feel not enthusiastic about. Mm. I'm just wondering kind of as someone who thinks about this a lot how you feel about the sort of future. So the world we live in, uh, look, I think it's broken, I think it's dark, I think it's screwed up in so many ways. I worry about sending my kids to school every single day, mm. and I worry about how to manage their lives when they're home with us, right? What, what are they living through? They're living through watching legislation in Florida around Don't Say Gay, right? Uh, my book is banned in three states. What? Um, uh, uh, there's uh, legislation in Texas around um, not being able to bring up race in class because it might make kids feel uncomfortable. Um, uh, pandemic, war, like shall I go on, right? Mm -hmm. But in the middle of that, I think this is the most remarkable generation. Hmm. They are activists. They are inclusive. They are thoughtful. They are saying and doing things that we never thought of doing, even as adults now. And so my hope is, is that if we equip them with the right tools, when they're 20, 30, 40, they're going to be running the world, but with these ideas and with these stories, so that it's the future that we all wanted for ourselves, right? Flying cars and inclusion. They'll get that. I sure hope you're right. Jelani Memory, everyone. Thank you so much. That was Jelani Memory right here on Livewire. Uh, you can check out all of the books and projects that a kid's co has available over at akidsco.com. So since we had Jelani on the show, Elena, it's been announced that the company, Akidsco, is going to team up with the Jim Henson Company for a new TV series, talking about, like, you know, having difficult conversations. Now you can do that. And if you, if you wonder about how effective a Jim Henson production can be in shaping a child's life, I, I did not go to first grade. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was unschooled, and I learned how to read from watching Sesame Street. It's one of America's greatest teaching tools, so what a great partnership with this new initiative. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's going to be two great tastes that taste great together, so that's really awesome. Make sure you check out akidsco.com for more information. 
This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we'll be back with some incredible music from Black Violin that you do not want to miss. Stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. It is our Black History Month special this week on the show. And our second musical guests met in orchestra class at Dillard High School in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, unlike a lot of people who meet in orchestra class in high school, these two folks continued collaborating uh, through college. And then after college, they got back together. They produced beats for 2 Chains and Lil Wayne, among others. And they've now released four albums, including the 2019 Grammy-nominated album, Take the Stairs. Uh, We talked to them back in 2021. This is Black Violin, right here on Livewire. Hey, thanks for having us. Uh, I understand you you guys met in high school music class. Did you like each other initially, or did you feel like you were rivals? What was the original relationship like? I think the original relationship was like, you know, because he was a year uh, above me. And I remember coming into to class and I was just like, damn, he's good. Like, <laughs> you know, I got to I got to compete against that. I got to I got to compete of a first chair with this dude, you know. Mm. And um, it took me like a few weeks. You know what I'm saying? I got first chair. He was, you know, trying to <laughs> trying to keep up, you know what I'm saying? So and then, Kev, you got into it because your mom was trying to keep you out of trouble. Yeah, my mama, my mama felt like I was going down the wrong path, so she wanted to, uh, you know, just get me into something else. She didn't think that this was going to happen. She was just literally trying to get me away from the kids in my neighborhood in any way she could. So she's like, oh, music class, go to that. And then I kind of took a liking to it. My teacher kind of took, you know, um, took me under her wing and, you know, taught me everything she knew. And then, you know, got to high school, meet this guy, and then we really started kind of flipping it up. And um, and then I think it just sort of happened, you know. She was never like the mom was like, go in a room and practice right now. She was never really like that. It was really more about trying to expose me to as many things as possible and hoping that I grab one of them, you know. And and this is the one that I ended up, you know, grabbing hold of. Cool. It's funny because if you type black violin into Google, one of the first things of the people also asked thing is what genre is black violin? Really? Like people are Googling this on the regular, trying to figure out exactly (laughs) what genre is. How do you guys describe the music that you make? I mean, I think that's an, that's a great thing when people are just like, what, what is this? I think yeah. that alone says what we are, you know, like uh-huh. just the idea, like we're genreless, you undefinable. Know? Right. Yeah, undefinable. Yeah. So yeah. I, I love that. That's one of that's the, one of the best things anyone said to me. Like that, you that people are like literally trying to find the box to put us in, cool. and we uh-huh. cannot be contained. So right, they love they it. love to put you in box though. You mm-hmm. know? Do you guys feel like you draw from the world of of string music about equally to say the world of hip hop? 
I, I, I don't think that it's 50-50. I think maybe when we started, it was a bit more 50-50 because we were super classical, like in college, you know, in the throes of it, studying it. But we lived hip hop. So we felt like, you know, a lot of re- the, the reason why we were successful at the beginning was because we blended it with such great respect for both sides, you know, whether it be classical or hip hop. Cool. Um, now... I mean, I don't know. I like, you know, Will, you said something to me in, in, in the other day in an interview about like, you don't even think of yourself as a classical musician anymore, which is crazy because you play viola and that's the only thing a viola can be <laughs> is classical, you know? Um, at, at this point, maybe like we've kind of created our own like string sound that that's what we kind of draw from at mm-hmm. this point, you know? Like we've already been influenced by the classical and now it's sort of like kind of, you know, cementing the black violin sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you just said it. I mean, the reason why I feel like for me, it's hard for me to consider myself a uh, classical musician because it's, it's again, that whole idea of being in a box. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. I like to pluck my my viola like a guitar. Like, I love doing that. I do that more than I bow, you know what I mean? So for me, I've just been going in this direction. And to answer your question, it's definitely not 50-50, but I would say for me, it's probably like 70-30. Which one's the 70 the 70 is everything else and the classical is 30, gotcha. <laughs> you know, because, because, you know, I, I like to, I like to just dabble and, and do a lot of different things. And, and, um, I love chamber music. I love certain composers, you know, Shostakovich and, but I think the idea of classic music being in this box, we got to, we got to move from that because if this, if this genre is going to survive, it, it's got to move away from this idea that it needs to be this, it needs to be that, and the stereotypes or whatever. Yeah. And for me, I'm, 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 I'm gone. I'm not <laughs> thinking about this genre in terms of trying to trying to fit its mold. Um, are you guys uh, at this point tired of being constantly asked during interviews about your experience as black men, in, you know, playing violin and viola and in the classical space? Or is is that something that you accept as kind of like part of trying to really shake up what people's expectations are and getting the word out to other people, particularly young people of color, that the classical music and string music can be for them? Yeah, man, it, it doesn't bother us. I mean, it is what it is. Because when people see us on stage, even before they see us on stage, they just hear the idea of, oh, I'm coming to this concert. It's a violin concert. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we come on stage. I'm going to speak the way that I speak. I'm from South Florida, so I'm, I'm going to speak with a little, you know, with a little twang or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And I'm going to play this violin because I've been trained to play this violin for 27 years. So, and um, whatever perspective, whatever thought, you know, you had in your mind about the violin or about me, you know, hopefully they're shattered by the time you leave, uh, you know, leave the theater and, you know, buy a CD and buy a shirt at the same time. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> you got to hit that merch stand got on to, the way man. out. <laughs> Do not miss the merch. Um, well, what song are we going to hear? All right. So, you know, speaking of all of this, you know, I mean, just this idea of doing things that people don't expect. Um, we're going to play the song Stereotypes off of our album. I was our third album. And this song in general is just really like a, a kind of like a, a microcosm of what people think, um, you know, they're supposed to do, you know, and we always like to say, Hey, you know, when someone says, Hey, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do this cause you're a girl or you shouldn't do this cause you're too young or you're too old to be doing this. It's like, ah, that's what you should be doing because no one else is doing it. And you should be running towards shattering that stereotype. So, uh, this one, uh, we call it stereotypes.
true belief that many people have about all things with a particular characteristic are the same. Stereotype, an unfair and untrue belief that, that many people have, have about other people or Stereotype, standardized mental picture predecir el comportamiento de una persona basada en su raza o nivel social. was Black Violin here on Livewire. Uh, here's a fun update. Earlier this year, they received a Grammy nomination for Best Americana Performance for the track of The Message in collaboration with the Blind Boys of Alabama. And uh, Black Violin is out on the road this spring, hitting cities like Madison, Salt Lake City, Tucson, and Portland. So look for them coming to a town near you. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. A big thanks to our guests, Sam J, Jelani Memory, Layla McCalla, and Black Violin. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. And our production fellow is Tanvi Kumar. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Crystal McCubbin-Masterson of Yam Hill, Oregon, and Laura Curvin of North Bend, Washington. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, please visit livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.
from PRX.